Hi there, and welcome to this episode of Take Home Reading, a new audio series from the Wheeler Centre. In each episode, we'll be speaking to an Australian writer about their latest book and hearing a reading from it. This podcast was recorded on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. The Wheeler Centre acknowledges their elders, past and present. We pay our respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and to the elders of all lands this broadcast reaches. I'm Stella Charles and I work in the programming team at the Wheeler Centre. Usually I host our monthly reading series, The Next Big Thing, but since we haven't been able to gather together for a few months now, we thought we'd bring these readings to you instead. Today I'm talking to Robbie Arnott. Robbie was a 2019 Sydney Morning Herald Best Young Novelist and won the Margaret Scott Prize in the 2019 Tasmanian Premier's Literary Prizes. His widely acclaimed debut novel, Flames, was shortlisted for a Victorian Premier's Literary Award, a New South Wales Premier's Literary Award, a Queensland Literary Award, the Readings Prize for New Australian Fiction, and not the Booker Prize. He lives in Hobart. Robbie's second novel, and the focus of our conversation, is The Rain Heron, published in June with Text Publishing. Hi, Robbie. Thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Stella. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the title of this incredible novel, The Rain Heron. Who who or what is The Rain Heron? Uh, The Rain Heron is a made-up mythical creature that I created for the purpose of this novel. And it's a myth in in this unnamed country where the book is set. And The Rain Heron is a myth of an animal that is created from rain and can bring wonderful bounty to the land and also quite harsh justice and harsh judgment. And it's a bit of a terrifying but beautiful creature that uh, no one really knows if it exists or not. How does this creature fit in to the world that you've created or the, the narrative of, um, of this novel? Well, the story of the novel starts really with a woman named Wren who's living on a mountain as a, as a hermit. She's almost a survivalist and she's fled the country where she lives because there's been a military coup and she just wants to live alone on a mountainside. And then some soldiers come to the mountain looking for the rain heron because they've heard that if there does such a thing does exist, this is where it exists. And if anyone knows where it would be, it would be the woman living on the side of the mountain. Um, it's not clear whether or not it does exist or if it's real, but they're quite determined to capture it. She's quite determined not to help them. And that's where the, the book really kicks off. I think um, what you did so incredibly with your previous book, Flames, and have done again here with The Rain Heron, is kind of bring this skill you have with surreal elements of magic and mythology of fable into a story, um, but in a way that still leaves these stories feeling really human at their core, like very relatable and affecting. I didn't, I, both times I didn't expect to be as moved by kind of by what happens to these characters as I, I was in both reading experiences. Can you talk a little bit about how you navigate that? Are these human, are these human stories for you? Well, I think, I think all stories are human stories in a way. Um, and I knew with both books I wanted to write a lot about the environment and I wanted to create these worlds that felt very, very visceral and tangible while being also quite fantastical. Um, but, of course, I wanted there to be people involved and there to be story and character elements. And all, all I guess I tried to do is to have all the fantastical elements or imaginative elements 
as things that feel like they fit neatly into these people's lives and into the world they live in. I didn't want to over-explain them or make it feel like I've heaping on a bunch of exposition about why there's a bird made out of rain um, or why there's certain other elements as well. Um, and I thought if it's something that characters just accept, then, then they'll feel more human as well and they'll feel more like real people if there's these crazy things happening, but, but they're just willing to accept it. And I think that's one of the ways I tried to flesh them out a bit rather than have them wandering around wide-eyed at the impossibility of, them all, of it all. I thought it would feel like a more relatable reaction for them to just kind of get on with things and get on with their lives because most people are inherently quite self-interested, even if, you know, there's some sort of vaguely terrifying myth bird coming for them. I think core to this novel is humans' relationship with the, their environment, with the natural world. Was that kind of the first place you started when you th- thought about this story and, and um, what it was important for you to address in your writing? It feels like that that's really core to where your thinking comes from. You live in Tasmania and you sort of have this affinity with the environment around you. Yeah, does that does that come first? Yeah, it does. I, I wanted to have characters put in these situations in these in these natural environments and how they would react under under quite hard circumstances. Um, it's interesting you say affinity with the environment because I don't necessarily feel that I have a great affinity with the environment. I just go bushwalking and snorkeling sometimes. Um, and I just like looking at it. Uh, I don't feel like I'm one with nature or anything like that. Um, and I wanted to have these characters who are experiencing something like that while also uh, brushing up against the unknowable nature of the environment and how they're going to react when they're put under a lot of tension and, and stress um, within a kind of natural landscape. Um, I thought that would be a really interesting point of tension for a story and also uh, just a nice and fun thing to write. I, I don't think I could write about a city for very long. And, and that's fine because there's hundreds of novels about cities, so that's okay. <laughs> I read you say in an interview somewhere that the most boring thing for you was two characters sitting at a table having a conversation or something, which I, I loved. Oh, yeah, I don't mean that's that's boring to me to read because there's obviously heaps of great novels. Like, you know, you read My Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferrante and they sit around talking and it's amazing. Um, I just can't write it, I don't think. I just think I'm crap at writing it, so I try and not do it. You spoke about um, this relationship between humans and their environment as like a key point of tension. Um, there is a, a violence there and violence runs through the rain heron um, in in different ways. How did you approach writing violence? Was that easy for you? It's sometimes very hard to read. I started off with just with the thought that I wanted to show how violence we enact upon each other is mirrored in the violence we enact upon the natural world. And I wanted to have these kind of things playing with each other and contrasting against each other, this, this violence against the environment and this violence from people upon people. Um, and from there I just leaned into my imagination and also the brutal reality of violence. Um, I was always much better at getting punched than punching um, and that's been my most of, I haven't been in a fight in 12 years so, and I've never been in a tough bad one. It was just football games. Um, but it's something that stays with you when you've been concussed or when you've, when you've seen or experienced violence and I think the key to writing about it is to not try and Hollywood it or not try to make it feel like some sort of artful, um, beautiful thing. It's or some sort of kind of 
worthy activity be engaged in because violence is never worthy. Um, and so that's how I tried to write about it, I mean, the, the gruesome brutality of it because uh, there didn't seem any point in trying to write about violence in any other way. I'm really curious to know what kinds of things you were reading, um, fiction or otherwise, as you wrote The Rain Heron, if there are any um, books or other kind of creative work that influenced um, these themes that you're exploring or your writing style in any way? I think one that really did influence me was The Peregrine by J.A. Baker. It's this nonfiction nature writing account of this guy riding his bicycle around Essex just looking at falcons in post-World War II. And it's just the most beautiful book and it's the way he writes about the landscape is quite stark but also just suffused with love and wonder and awe. And I was just amazed at reading that book. It reads like just, it's almost just like diary entries of this guy going and looking at birds and it's incredible. And I would never say that, you know, I tried to mimic him or anything like that, but I think his approach to writing about the world leaked into the rain heron and how I tried to write about landscapes. There are probably hundreds of other influences as well, but I'm, I'm not smart enough to know exactly which writers have influenced me where. I love that. I could definitely see love and wonder and awe all through the rain heron. Have you been able to read over the last few months with everything that's been going on in the world? And have you found that the sort of books that you've been picking up are different to normal? Yeah, I, I, I've been doing a lot of reading, I guess. Um, I, I guess the same as normal. Uh, I've been taking in less, but I really, really liked The Animals in That Country by Laura Jean McKay. Um, I just thought it was a wonderful book, and anyone who reads it, there's a particular bit towards the end with whales that um, I'm still thinking about all the time. Uh, and speaking of whales, I really like Fathoms by Rebecca Giggs. Uh, I, again, I really just like the lyricism for writing and the way she she just feels like she's taking on something people have been writing about forever in Wales and doing it in just a fresh and amazing way. And I also read, I guess, another one that really stood out to me. It was quite an old book called I Heard the Owl Call My Name by Margaret Craven. Uh, yeah, just a beautiful short novel set in the Pacific Northwest of America and Canada. And I thought it was wonderful and I couldn't believe I'd never heard of it before. Yeah, I think it's wonderful. Do you think um, I spoke to Laura G. McKay for this podcast and one is she also brought up that she feels like her book has been released at a really interesting point where it's kind of in a dialogue with a lot of other writing about about animals in particular that about our natural world more broadly like do do you feel that a little bit like how it feels like that there are just a lot of of work out that people are really keen to engage in that are sort of grappling with these issues I wonder if that if that's more noticeable to you compared to when Flames was released or if it's just a coincidence. I don't know. I suppose so. Um, I probably don't pay enough attention to what's going on. Um, I, 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 I think so. Like it, it does – I would agree. Um, it's just not something I feel that I've, I'll figure out until a couple of years later. And someone will say a lot of books like that came out that time and I think, oh, yeah, I never noticed it, but that's a good point. Um, yeah, I heard the term cli-fi. I don't know. I don't know what that means, but um, I guess so. I think there are a lot of writers who are more concerned with with the state of the natural world than perhaps they have been in previous decades, because we're at a point where it's there's no going back, and you can't you can't help but have that playing on your mind. I imagine. Yeah, exactly. And it feels like if you're writing a book about people and you're 
the natural world doesn't play a role, the environment, you know, the climate crisis that we're in doesn't play a role, but in, in, in some respects that means your work is speculative to a degree, you know? Like it, yeah, it's kind yeah. Of, uh, all work's speculative though, isn't it? That's, a, that's another, I don't really get genre terms and publishing stuff like that. Maybe it's just because I don't live in a big city and people don't talk about it to me very often. But when someone says this is a book of speculative fiction, I think, Anyway, I agree, I agree. Yeah. Um, I'd love you to read from The Rain Heron for us. Before you do, is there anything you need to say to set up the extract? Uh, no, I'm going to read from the very start, so it's at least as confusing as possible. Love it. <laughs> Take it away. A farmer lived, but not well. If she planted grain, it would not sprout. If she grew rice, it would rot. If she tried to raise livestock, they would gasp and choke and die before they'd seen a second dawn. Success and happiness were foreign to her, and she had forgotten what it was like to go to bed unhungry. All she had was her hunger and her farm, and her farm, as far as she could tell, wanted her to starve. Her struggles weren't due to laziness or a lack of skill. She had been raised on farms. Her parents and grandparents had been farmers, and she knew as much about crops and soil and animal husbandry as anyone else in the valley where she lived. She worked hard and long, under a harsh sun and in bone-soaking rain. When she'd exhausted every technique she'd learned from her family, she turned to books, experiments, strange fertilisers, none of which helped. No enemy had salted her fields or cursed her name, for she had no enemies. She was liked and respected by all the people of the valley. There was no reason for her farm's failure. Yet her crops continued to rot and her livestock continued to die. Six years after her parents died and left her on the farm alone, six years of hungry, dismal failure, a black, a black storm blew over the mountains and into the valley. Thunder crashed through walls, lightning licked trees, the wind grew fangs and chewed barns into splinters. Worst of all was the rain. Oceans of freezing, sideways-blown water heaved onto the farms of the valley, turning paddocks into lakes and ponds into seas. These wide waters soon swelled the river that ran through the valley, hastening its current, carrying away topsoil, crops, herds, fences and outbuildings. People took shelter in their stone houses as animals died outside in the chocolate flood. Behind their old, thick walls, they were safe. Everyone was accounted for. Everyone but the unlucky farmer. After the storm stopped raging, it took a full day before the floodwaters began to drop. Only then could the people of the valley venture out in fishing boats and on upturned dining tables to try to salvage their property. It was at the dusk of this day, a day of sorrowful searching, of fishing with colanders and paddling with hat stands, that they found her. As the weak sun dipped, a group of teenagers piloting an ancient coracle saw something strange in the limbs of an old leafless oak. Paddling nearer, they saw that it was the unlucky farmer, dead or unconscious, her body draped over the branches like a nightgown hung out to dry. But more curious than this was what they saw next. A huge heron, the colour of rain, suddenly emerging from the flood in a vast, steep flight, leaving not even a ripple on the water beneath it. With a languid flap of its wings, it came to rest on the crown of the oak, standing over the unlucky farmer, as if on guard. The teenagers brought their boat to a stop. This water-risen heron was unlike any other they'd seen before, any other heron, any other living creature. Its blue-grey feathers were so pale, they claimed later, that they could see straight through the bird. Its body was pierced by strands of dusky light, 
and, it, and the tree was clearly visible behind its sharp, moist beak. A ghost, one claimed. A mirage, said another. But before they could get closer, the heron hunched its neck, flapped its wings and leapt into the sky. A thick spray of water fell from its wings, far more water than should have been resting on its feathers. Then it disappeared into the remnants of the storm. The teenagers watched it vanish, not sure what they were seeing, not trusting their tired eyes and waterlogged minds. At that moment, the unlucky farmer rolled in her cradle of branches, coughed out a spurt of black mud and sucked at the air with great need, great violence. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. Thank you, Stella. Thanks. You've been listening to Take Home Reading, a Wheeler Centre audio series. That was Robbie Arnott reading from his novel The Rain Heron. It's published by Text Publishing and available now. Please shop local and support new Australian work. We'll be back soon with another episode of Take Home Reading. Until then, visit wheelercentre.com for the best in books, writing and ideas from Melbourne, Australia and the world. Music